it's something I've never done before. <laughs> I don't want you to get scared. If it's your first time here, you're like, oh, my word. I know pastors can preach long, but he just said he's going to preach two messages. I'm going to tell you that I feel um, uh, strongly that the Holy Spirit gave me additional input and feedback on last week's message on repentance as part of worship. And so I want to share that with you. If I only get through that and our time is up, that'll be okay with me. But I also want to share with you some postures in worship and talk to you about our physical acts in worship. So I, I want to try to kill two birds with the same stone today, and we'll see how far we'll get on that. If you didn't, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go on to our website and you can find our podcast and our messages and listen to last week's message on repentance as an act of worship. We said that the word, the Greek word mentioned in the, the message last week and mentioned throughout the, the word of God is the Greek word metanoia. Repentance isn't the acknowledgement or the confession of sin. What it actually is, is the changing of one's mind. How many of you have ever had your mind changed? <laughs> That's pretty much everybody. You decided you weren't going to go, but then you decided, oh yeah, you know what, I'll go anyway. Or you decided, I'm not going to enroll in that class, and you did anyway, and you lived to regret it. No, I'm just kidding. But you, you, you had something where you changed your mind, okay? This is what repentance is. And what I want to tell you this morning is that our behavior always follows our belief, the way that we act on the outside is a natural indicator of what exists on the inside. It's kind of scary to think about it in terms like that, but that's really the truth from the word of God when it says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it also talks about how, you know, there's been a conversation throughout theology and throughout church um, world for quite some time about is our salvation by works or is it by faith? And we believe it is by faith, but our faith that goes deep on the inside of us causes us to react and respond on the outside. And so we have to see that works accompanied with faith is how we experience salvation. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. I want to read to you this morning and, and talk a little bit about a man named Esau. Hebrews 12, verse 17, it's on the screen for you. It says, For you know that afterward, when Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The original context of this can be found in Genesis chapter 27, verse 34. And I want to read to you these two or three verses in Genesis 27. They'll be on the screen for you. In 34, it says, When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. A few verses later in verse 37, the word of God tells us, Isaac answered and said to Esau, so Isaac's the dad, if you, if you haven't caught up. Isaac's the dad, he's got two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, um, Jacob is there and he has tricked his father and he has gotten the blessing, okay? Now Isaac the father is answering and saying to Esau in verse 37, Indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren. I have given to him as servants with grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? Verse 38 says, And Esau said to his father, 
Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. If you've attended Sunday school before or you heard the story before, you know that something happens. Esau seems to be a really hungry kind of guy. He comes in from hunting or whatever, and he's there, and he's, he's trying to get something to eat. And the story goes that Jacob, with the help of his mother, convinces or cons, we could say, the father in receiving a blessing from the father. In those days, and I believe still now, there's the ability for a blessing to rest on someone. It's not just a, hey, God bless you because you sneezed, but it's a blessing that rests on you as a result of things that are spoken over you. I believe that with all of my heart, when we have a baby dedication, we bless that child and we speak a blessing over them, that they would have a long life, that they would always know the truth of God's word, that they would never leave the house of the Lord, that Jesus would always find his house in their heart. I do the same thing when we, get, when we have couples that get married, and I've married several. When I do that, I speak a blessing over that husband and over that wife, that they would love one another, that they would cherish one another, that they would never separate, that the Lord would bless them as they walk in this mess of a life that we call marriage sometimes. But I speak that blessing over them in that place of being the officiant, but also being a man of God. In the word of God, in those old days, the fathers would speak blessings that had weight. They had consequences. And so now the blessing has been given, and it can't be retracted or revoked and taken back. So it's been said that Esau desperately wanted to repent from his sinful behavior, but could not find a place to do it or the right way to do it. But what is it that Esau could not find? If you're reading along with us in the context of the thought of repentance, the truth is he could not find a way to change Isaac's mind. It says he begged, he pleaded, he had bitter cries, he was sorrowful, he did everything he knew to do. But dad, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But it didn't change Isaac's mind. Isaac had set his, his mind and it was not going to be changed. The point is this, repentance is the changing of a mind. We said last week, it's not a behavior issue or a sin issue, it's a heart issue. The truth is, your fruit demonstrates your roots. If you have your roots in the word of God and it's in your heart, then you will be that person that demonstrates the life that Jesus calls us to very easily. Will there be challenges? Yes. But is that why your pastor says to you almost every week recently, read your Bible this week or don't come back next Sunday? Because I want you to be a firmly planted believer. I don't want this to be the only nutrient or the only food that you get. Can that work? Can you continue to be a believer and not read the word of God every day? It's really challenging and difficult. If we love him, we've got to love his word and what he's speaking to us, and we've got to know it. The psalmist said, David said this, he said, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So God's word protected him or helped him because our fruit is always going to be a demonstration of our roots. Think about that with your kids. And let's work on their hearts and on their roots. 
Maybe the chastisement of bad behavior isn't really what it's all about. Maybe it's something that we need to consider what's going on in the heart of a child who is always disobedient, who rejects discipline, who fights, who has anger. Who, and then you think, okay, well, yeah, I can fix my kids, but what about you and I? We have issues too, right? So number one about this with the repentance of the changing of our mind is this. When we think about a couple examples, there's the first example. We don't read our Bible faithfully because we haven't fully understood the importance of hiding God's word in our heart. We don't think that it's all that important because if we did, we would read it daily. So th this is not me shouting at you, telling me that you're a horrible person. This is me telling you, you are in a room full of people who are imperfect, but the point is to be making progress. Hello? Amen? The point is to be making progress. When, we, when we're fearful of punishment as children, what is one of our reactions? We lie. We make up something. When we're filled with pride or vanity, we lie. When we struggle with greed, we lie. When we see the truth as inconvenient, we lie. You can see that in the world of politics really easy on the news, but you could also see it in your own home and in your own heart. It's because it's not the behavior, but it's the heart behind it. When we don't tithe, we don't tithe because we don't understand or trust that God really owns it all. You can blame laziness. You can blame financial struggle, which we all have done at some point, had a financial struggle. You can blame all sorts of other things. But the truth of the word of God is if you would give him 10%, he'll help you make that 90% stretch further than you ever thought. But the thing is, you've got to believe it. When we lash out at our spouse, there's something deeper at work. Is it maybe because of an unforgiveness in your heart? Is it because of a longstanding grudge? Is it, is it because your spouse is an evil imp who's set to terrorize your life? No, it's not because of that. You stood at an altar, or in our case, on a hill one day in a beautiful green pasture, and we got married, and we said, I do, and we keep saying, I do, through thick and thin, for poorer and poorer, and for all the other struggles that you have, you, you're laughing because you've been there. We say yes in that moment, and we've got to keep saying yes, and the, the thing that we've got to navigate is what is in our heart. We know that she doesn't hate us, or well, maybe you need convincing of that, but we'll talk about that in our marriage series later this year, but she doesn't hate you. She said yes, and she loves you, and you've got to believe the truth because the truth helps you respond correctly. The truth is, underneath our seemingly perfect exteriors, there can be disease and bacteria and things which affect the heart, and because of those things, we act accordingly. So the question then becomes, how can someone change their mind? How, how can you do this? My goal this year, and I, I want to tell you this at the outset, my goal this year is to offer you some, not self-help, but some practical advice in every one of our sermon series, how to Whatever it is, fill in the blank. When we talk about worship, we're going to talk about how do we worship. And in this moment, the question then is, how can I walk out of here and change my mind about something? How many of you have political views that you're not willing to change? 
Raise your hand. It's okay. We're not going to talk about it. We're just asking, okay? How many of you have views on money, which you're not going to change, right? You got an idea and a, okay, you got an idea about your family and it's not going to be easily changed, okay? You're not going to change your mind about those things, but this is what you can do to change your mind. If you look at the screen, we have verse 31 of chapter 8 in John. Jesus tells us how to change our mind. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you listen to that in the context of what we're saying today, he says, if you stick with me and in my word, if you abide in my word and keep my word inside of you, you will be free indeed. That means your actions on the outside will demonstrate that you've got God's word in your heart and in your life. And I say this with all, uh, with all sincerity this morning, that for your own children's sake and your grandchildren's sake, get in the word of God. It's, it's life, it's liberty, it's all of the things that we want. We see a God who loves us, who cares for us, who provides for us, who protects us, and our children and our grandchildren must know this faith. There are other faiths in the world that are doing a much better job with a much, much, much worse version of what they consider the truth. We must be the people who have God's word inside of us because by knowing the truth, we can be made free. And this is not only the truth about God, but it's also the truth about man. We talk about that from time to time in here because we want to talk about the, the reality is, is that your kid, your little cute booger-eating child, did not come out of the womb with all of its all of its heart in the right place. Yes, physically it was in the right place, but spiritually speaking, they're, they're wicked. Have you ever met a kid? <laughs> I mean, they could be really wicked. It comes naturally, okay? It comes, <laughs> a mom says, right, that's, amen, that's good. Preach, but we've got to help direct them in the right way. To get them to the place. Okay, look at this. We're going to finish up with Sermon 1 in just a second. This is pretty good. We're rolling really fast. I hope you're as excited as I am. Go to Luke chapter 15. We're going to have the verses on the screen for you. But I, I wanted to help you understand in a more concrete way what it means to repent, which is to change your mind. The only way to change your mind is to be confronted with the truth. I think about this in terms of the world used to be flat in people's minds. But then they discovered it's not. Were there still people in those days that said, oh, baloney, there's no way it's round, it's flat, it's flat as can be. Yeah, there were still people who held to what they now were confronted with, the truth, they held to the falsehood. And I believe when we get stuck in patterns of sin and habits and we get hung up on different things, it's because we're not allowing the word of God to reveal himself to us and how much we need him. Luke chapter 15 verse 11 says this. It's talking about someone who came to their senses and who repented. You might be familiar with the story, but I want to read it together with you today. Verse 11, it says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. 
And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went, and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields, into his fields, to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17 says this, but when he came to himself, another version would say, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger, I'm dying out here, and yet they've got extra and left over. Verse 18 says, I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let's eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now, there are lots of messages that have been preached about this prodigal son. There are lots of messages that have been preached about the bad or poor attitude of the brother who was left behind. There are lots of ideas that we can gather from the reception of this human father to our heavenly father that says, it doesn't matter if you're covered in pig slop, I'll take you back. That's powerful. That will change the life of an individual. I tell the story of my grandfather and being able as a teenager to lead him to the Lord on his deathbed days before he died. And he continued. He had sorrow. He beat my grandmother silly. This is in the days when they didn't call the cops and neighbors didn't really worry so much. And my grandmother took beating after beating for years. When we would show up at grandma's house and grandpa's house, we would notice that she tried to put on extra makeup. There were marks all over her skin as a result of his abuses. And yet I could stand in a hospital room and tell him, Grandpa, God still wants you. He'll take you. But he wasn't convinced. He kept saying, no, I've got to clean this up. I've got to make things right. And that's a good and honest and right response. There was a lot of things that he needed to make right before he left this world. And I'm thankful the Lord gave him a few extra days in order to do that. I know that my grandfather and grandmother are in heaven together because she came to faith and had a real experience with God because she saw forgiveness. The point is this. God will take you even if you're covered in slop. And he'll keep taking you back, even if you've come to the place where you've been his son or his daughter, and you've walked out of his house, and you still return, he'll still take you back again. Because he's a good and a graceful and a kind and a loving and a generous father. Think about that. 
The truth can set you free. And this young man, the prodigal son, he was truly repentant. He was living contrary. I want you to listen this morning. He was, listen, he was, he was living contrary to his true identity. The story that Jesus tells does not give any kind of ethical, not ethical, ethnic idea of who this boy was. But Jesus is talking to a crowd of Jewish people. They weren't supposed to be near pigs. They don't eat the swine. That was something that was off limits. So he's telling them, this guy has committed the worst of the worst, and still he's come back. But this young man, this Jewish man, was living contrary to his true identity. And when he came to himself, it was the memory of his father. It was the memory of his original identity that provided the reference and the basis upon which he could come to himself. He had the truth in his heart, and it had been darkened. He left, he went out, and he drank, and he spent his money, and he caroused, and he lived wildly. He did everything that a sinful person would want to do. And when he ran out of cash, he ran back to God. And God took him anyway. That's not an excuse for you to walk out of here and live like the devil, Monday through Saturday, and then come in here on a Sunday and say, well, I'm getting right with Jesus again. I'm not coming back. No, we've got to let the word of God penetrate our life and our heart. If the pig pen was where he began, he would not have any reference to a better life. However, he remembered who he really was it was in stark contrast to his experience in the pig pen. This jolted him into reality and into action. He could either continue his existence in this false yet very tangible identity, or he could embrace what he remembered as the truth about himself. The truth is what set that young man free. You should let it f- set you free as well. We should allow the word of God and the knowledge of the truth of who God is to set us free. When we're convinced of the truth of who God is and of who we are because we are wicked, we are sinful, we are gross, we don't meet up to God's standard in any way, shape, or form on even our best day. But Jesus was given for us. We can then begin to live according to the truth When we see the truth and hear the truth, knowing the truth in our hearts, then we live it on the outside. Does that make sense to you? So if you've ever thought uh, about a struggle that you've had with a certain sin or a certain issue, if you've ever had a struggle with the same person because that person has a certain attitude or behavior, the problem doesn't lie in the behavior. Yes, as a parent, I correct behavior. But more so than that, I try to get eyeball to eyeball with my little one and try to talk to her and ask her what's going on in her heart. I want to know why. Because once I know why, I can help her. Amen? Message one is over. Praise God. All right, message two, and this will be really quick, okay? I want to talk to you today about postures of worship. Okay, You're, and I promise you, just because this went so good, I'm not going to preach two messages every Sunday. Just telling you that, okay? <laughs> Postures of worship. I want you to think in context of what we just talked about and listen to me. Your physical posture is a demonstration of your spiritual posture. 
You were created with the dynamic ability to express yourself. How many of you have ever had a pet? Okay, raise your hand if you've had a dog. Okay, okay, I don't want to talk to the cat owners. Put your hands down. Just the dog owners and dog lovers, okay? If you've ever had a dog, how do you know that dog loves you? You don't. He doesn't, okay? I've had a lot of dogs in my life. They're cute. The only expression they have is not a smile, although that's really weird if you've seen the YouTube videos with the dog that actually pulls, pulls his lips up. But we're not talking about that. All he can do is wag his tail. And he's only wagging his tail because he's going to get something from you, because you're going to cuddle with him, you're going to feed him, you're going to make sure he doesn't stay out in the rain too long. It's that reason that he loves you. Now, I want you to understand, we as humans are separated from the animal kingdom in that we have a spirit that lives inside of us. We are a spirit being living in a physical body. And our physical posture demonstrates our spiritual posture. Let me ask you this to just check if you're listening. You ever had a conversation with someone whose physical posture was different than what you wanted it to be? I think about, you know, students in a classroom you know, I'm standing up on the inside, but I'm sitting here. You know, you can see that on their face. There, there are people when you, you just know because of the physical reality that's outside of them. You were created with emotions. Do you know that? Because you were created in the image of God, God has emotions. And throughout the scripture, many different physical expressions of worship are present. Remember, Revelation 4, verse 11 says, To God himself, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So how can we use our physical posture? Let me say this as a disclaimer. You say, Pastor, that sounds kind of judgmental. I'm not too comfortable raising my hands in church just yet, or I've not been around that kind of thing uh, I'm not going to dance and twirl in the front. That's okay. Um, I'm not going to shout really loud because I love Jesus. You know, maybe that's not you, and that's okay. It's a judgment-free zone. But what I want to challenge you to understand is that you have no other ability than to express what's on the inside of you. You can hide it. You can keep it down. You can do your hands like this, okay? You can do a little, you know, just a little bit of praise. You can do that. That stuff is in the Word of God, and that's what we're going to talk about in these last four or five minutes. Number one, use your voice. Psalm 34 verse 1 says, I will praise or extol the Lord at all times. So speak His praise. The word there continues, his praise will always be on my lips. Use your voice by shouting for joy. Psalm 27, verse 6, then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me, and at his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. The psalmist had a reason to shout for joy because God had lifted him out of where his enemies were, and they were surrounding him and had exalted him up, not because he was his favorite, but because he was his kid and he was protecting him. So David's response outwardly is to shout for joy. Sing praise. Use your voice to sing praise. I started at the beginning telling you it doesn't matter how bad you sound. <laughs> sing a little quieter if you know you sound bad. But just sing praise. I'm just kidding, right? That's okay. 
Sing praise. Psalm 47 verse 6 says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. So you say, okay, that covers all the whole thing. Like I used to do the hymnal thing. Now we've got a screen. I get it. I'm adaptable. I can sing a song. That's good. Hopefully the worship team does a song I know. And so I jump into the words and that kind of thing. How about these postures? Bowing or kneeling. Psalm 95, verse 6, come let us bow down in worship and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let me just stop here for a second. If you do this for a show, you should be out the door. Doing it so that someone sees you kneel down is stupid. Can I just be so bold? Raising your hands and be like, hey, oh, hey, Jericho, look at me, I'm praising Jesus. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an actual expression of love from my heart to God himself. And I can do that. There are moments in worship where if, if we sing a song that says, here I bow down, here I'm kneeling before you, you can bow down if you want to or kneel down. In other cultures, we've seen them do that to kings. We do that to Jesus, who is our king. The other thing is you can stand. In Psalm 119, verse 120, it says, I stand in awe. Talk, talking about the presence of God, I stand in awe of him. So when we start worship, I don't want you sitting on your keister. I want you up. I want your body engaged in what's happening. I want you playing an in instrument. I want you singing. Wait a second. That sounds like just you, pastor. No, I want you doing it because God's word says that we ought to. Dancing. Now, we had a little joke before. Anybody ever seen that Seinfeld episode with Elaine where she's doing her little weird dance, okay? Hey, if that's what you've got, praise the Lord, okay? Just praise him. Praise him kind of slow and soft beside yourself. Don't hit anybody. But you can dance. Psalm 149 verse 3 says, Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with a tambourine and a harp. Playing instruments. Thank you, worship team. You're obeying the Lord and the word of God every week when you do this. Psalm 33, verse 2 and 3 says, Praise the Lord with the instrument of the harp. Make music to him. Play skillfully. You better practice. Right? <laughs> As the worship leader amends me. You better practice because you got to play skillfully and shout for joy. Do this with me. Clap your hands. I see some of your physical postures right now, and you're like, okay, I'm talking about clap. If you got called down on the price is right, everybody in the room goes wild. When your team wins and they get a touchdown or whatever, you go wild. Clapping is a natural response. So in Psalm 47, verse 1, it says, clap your hands, all you nations. Even the ones that don't believe in God should clap and worship him. Shout to God with cries of joy. You should lift up your hands. It's a sign of surrender. Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 30, or 63 verse 4 says, I'll praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. There are some internet memes that talk about praise and worship. You know, kind of looks like the air traffic control people with the cones and the flashlights and the whatever. Listen, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Whatever you want to do. But lift your hands. Why are you doing that? 
because you're showing God. You're not showing anybody in this room. You're just simply expressing, God, in this moment, I'm surrendering myself to you. And if you've ever seen somebody get taken by a police officer, you know when they say put their hands up, they ain't talking about this, okay? <laughs> They're talking about this, okay? Because you want to be safe and clear, all right? So you get that, okay? Clapping, lifting hands, none of these expressions of worship should be foreign to us, and they're not in our everyday life. We practice them in other ways, but we don't sometimes put them into worship. And I'm telling you, if you've been in a stuffy church before, I'm really sorry. And if you've been in a crazy wild one where people did stuff so they could show off, I'm really sorry. But I want us to be in the house of the Lord genuinely expressing our heart. And I'm not standing there going, well, Andrew didn't lift his hands this Sunday. I guess him and his wife are having some problems. I don't care what he does. That's why the lights are off. You might think, well, what did I come into, a club? No, well, you came into a private expression of God's grace to his people. And so there's some playing, there's some singing, there's some kneeling, there's some lifting their hands. Do what you got to do to worship God, but don't hold back your worship from him. Amen? Almost done with the second message. I'm not going to go for three, okay? At a, at a wedding, what happens when that bride comes in the room? Everybody stands. When a man loves a woman. No. When a man proposes and he asks for a woman's hand in marriage, most often and historically or traditionally, he what? Bows to one knee. He might be on both knees going, please marry me, please, please marry me. But okay, there's somebody that said, yeah, that was me. That's what I did. Thank God she said yes. Is that the one that said yes? Okay, never mind. Anyway, so dancing, it's celebration. It's also intimate. You ever had a slow dance? Man, I'm a horrible dancer. But a dance can be an expression of celebration or it can be an expression of intimacy if you're Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld, it can be an expression of individuality, okay? <laughs> we clap with enthusiasm for everything that pleases us. Mark, Mark, would you wave at everybody right here? Okay. Mark was in this room with me when my Patriots won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Look at his face. Mark was here, and he witnessed something pretty expressive, okay? We were watching it on the big screen. All of y'all haters, y'all left at halftime or whatever. But I was here and I kept saying, all they need is a, is a touchdown and a two-point conversion. And then the first touchdown in the, in the overtime, this is good. We got this. Brady, come on. Now, I'm sorry. I know there are Patriots haters in the room. Just bear with me a second. When that happened, my flesh exploded. <laughs> I just went, yeah, and I jumped, and I hit the floor, and I clapped, and I shouted. I did what any of you would do if your team had won. So we clap with enthusiasm for things that please us. Musicians play their instruments for hours on end, even if no one listens. If your team has ever won a game, you shout Singing is done by the talented and the untalented alike. It's done in cars and showers and on stages. It, it's, we are a musical people. We love music. It touches us. When we looked at lifted hands, sporting events, competitions, you could see this. Whenever somebody scores a goal, yes, yes. 
Man, God's given you victory. The psalmist, King David himself, worship team, join me. Come on up. The psalmist, King David, he was shouting. He was excited and celebrating what God had done. I want you to stand with me too, church. I want us to practice just with one song or two right here at the end. And it might not be the time for dancing. It might not be the time for shouting. Feel whatever you want to as you express your your worship to the Lord today. Go ahead with the lights off. I want to challenge you today to express yourself to God. And you say, hey, God and I aren't that close. Maybe I don't have that much to express. That's okay. You can express that to him too. Because he's the God who hears. He's the God who listens when we pray. He's the God who loves even if we're covered in pig slop. He loves us anyway. Even if you've been far from God, he loves you and wants you back. Even if you've been a believer for 20 years and maybe you've got a struggle you're still, you're still working on. He wants you to worship him in spirit, in your spirit, and with truth. Worship is a choice, and I want you to choose that this morning in these last few minutes together, and then I'll come and close in prayer. But let me just pray over you right now before we worship. Close your eyes right now, if you would. Just give each other a moment of privacy in this room. I just want to ask you today, if there's someone in this room and you say, Pastor, today I understand repentance and I need to repent. I'm not going to call you up and hand you a mic, but you say, I need God to help me change my mind. Lift your hand right now. Even if it's not on a gross sin or something horrible, but something like that, you say, yes, that's me. You can put your hands down. If you're here in this room and you say, Pastor, I've struggled before to express myself in worship, or, or I've been in a church that was wild and crazy and really didn't feel right, or I've been in a really stuffy place and I'm not too comfortable lifting my hands, but you say today, I want to worship God with my whole heart. Would you just lift up your hand? Just signify to God, not to me, I've got my eyes closed. Just signify to God that you want to worship Him today. Father, I pray over us right now as the worship team leads us and as we sing these few songs, I pray that you'd help us to express ourselves. Help us to ask forgiveness. Help us to speak your praise. Help us to repent and allow your word to change our mind today. In the name of Jesus, amen.